The words of Jesus are recorded in Matthew 5, 6. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then he promises, for they will be filled. So let me ask you, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Because here comes your refill. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming in and getting your refill. Let's start off today with a verse to frame our discussion. This is Exodus 34, verse 14. It says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And that's right, we're talking about God's jealousy. And we tend to define this word in two different ways, but both are pretty negative. The first way we can define it is jealousy is wanting what others have. You know, my son's favorite thing at the playground is, is the swing. And when his siblings jump on him and he can't swing, he gets really jealous. The other way we can define it is trying to keep what you already have. This can be seen in something like a jealous boyfriend or girlfriend who is overly controlling and manipulative, manipulative so they can maintain their relationship. But is this what we mean when we say God is jealous? Is he up there jealous that he's not getting what he wants like my son in the swing set? Or is he this overbearing, controlling, and manipulative being that is so insecure in who he is that he demands our time and our worship? Well, let's look at the Bible and, and let's look at it in the context of the first two commandments and see if we can't answer that question. This is Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now I'm going to stop right here. God first notes that he is God, the God who brought them out of Egypt. This is essentially God putting out his resume. And so what we're going to do, we're going to do a quick recap and obviously non-exhaustive on uh, recap on what God has done at this point in history. Okay. In the beginning, God performed the greatest miracle in the history of history. He spoke all creation into existence. Then he flooded the entire earth, saving only Noah and his family because of the pervasiveness of sin. Then he gave Abraham and Sarah, who were nearly a hundred years old, he gave them a baby. He destroyed great cities. He turned people into pillars of salt. Uh, he saved his people from a seven-year famine and drought through Joseph's crazy slave-turned-second-in-command story. When Egypt became a superpower and enslaved Israel, God didn't forget them, but brought up Moses, who then performed miracles through the power of God and, and did these 10 plagues, proving to these polytheistic Egyptians who believed in multiple gods and multiple spirits that there was only one true God. Then God led his people out of Egypt and guided them by a pillar of clouds by day or a fire by night. And then when Pharaoh went back on his word and chased them down, his armies met the might of God, and they were consumed by the Red Sea, which was already split in two. And so when we read this verse or these verses, we should do what it did for them. It should bring all of this and honestly more front and center in your mind. This is the God we're talking about. And so he continues in verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, first, when we look at this, we get to the first commandment, 
And it plainly states that only God should be given worship and praise and honor and glory. Now, we need to realize that there are a lot of gods going around, little g, a lot of little gods that we can give our worship to even today. You know, we have a lot of golden calves in our lives, things like money, sex, status, or followers and subscribers. Anything that captures our time, focus, and adoration is receiving our worship and has become a God in our life. But God says that he's the one and only God. There's a a prayer that the Jews do daily called the Shema, and that's found in in Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God other than God. Therefore, God alone is our provider. And accordingly, in truth, no other person, thing, or false God should receive our worship. And so this this thinking flows directly into the second commandment where God addresses mankind's built-in created desire to worship and, and he steers it by condemning any form of idolatry or the fashioning of any likeness or, or, or creating anything and giving those created things power in your life. And I think as Christians, we can easily recognize those Buddha statues or the various Hindu God statues and, and we can go, oh yeah, of course we're not going to do that. But I think we're blind to our own statues. You know, maybe you have a lucky coin or a rabbit's foot or a dream catcher in your car. Or other things that, that we even slightly believe has some sort of supernatural power that, that somehow helps us. Now, I know what you're thinking. Does this include essential oils? <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that to you. But God doesn't want any graven image to hinder our worship of him. John 4.24 says God is spirit. He's not a tangible man nor something that can be shrunken down into a picture or a little trinket. He is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in truth and in spirit. And a graven image is neither of those things. Now, some might ask, well, what about the cross? Don't you worship the cross? Isn't that an idol? No, we don't worship the cross. We don't pray to it. We don't think it holds any power. It's simply a reminder of who God is. Now, if I were to to hold this cross and pray to it specifically and ask it to help me in some way, then I'd, I'd have a problem. But that's not, that's not what we do with the cross. And so thinking through all of this, we've now arrived at the famous jealousy verse in the Bible. Verse 5, you must not bow down to them or serve them. Again, those are idols or false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So here is where we can answer why God is, is jealous. After looking at his resume, after seeing all that God is and all that he's done, if we were to come to the conclusion that we need still something else, yeah, that could totally make God jealous. And so going back to our beginning question, how can God's jealousy be a righteous jealousy? Well, it's because our devotion, our praise, our focus is actually what he deserves. So no, it's not like God is jealous that others get what he wants, like a selfish kid wanting to play with another kid's toy. He's demanding what is rightfully his. And he's not either an insecure God who needs to control and manipulate his followers to love him. In reality, God sees the many shiny and attractive things that are vying for your worship, things that that make big promises to fulfill your life and yet give you nothing. And he wants to save you from that as a loving God would. 
He alone is faithful. He alone is able to fulfill, to grant peace or joy. So it is right for him to be jealous. It's a righteous jealousy. So here's the question. Why why should you care that God is jealous? Well, if God is a good, holy, perfect, and loving God, and he says he's jealous for you, then that's for a good reason. God knows what is best for you, his creation, and he knows that it's him. He wants all of your focus because in truth, you need to recognize him as Lord. Again, nothing on this earth will satisfy, not your love life, not your bank account, not alcohol or drugs, not fame or fortune, nothing will satisfy. He alone is the giver of our salvation, granting us justification before God and forgiveness of our sins through Jesus, which is our greatest need. And his jealousy should help you realize that it's only him that you need. So I want to end with this. We all have things that take our focus off the road of life. And that's because we're all fallen. We all have that squirrel moment where we avert our eyes on what we're doing and focus on things other than the main thing. But Hebrews 12.1 says this, and I think it's a great way to end. It says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. All right, take care. Have a great, great week. And we'll see you next time.